This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Saturday, November 18th, 2023. I'm Chad Pergram. Congress avoided another government shutdown, but it'll find itself yet again in another spending showdown in the new year. They just passed another continuing resolution, which is exactly what got former Speaker Kevin McCarthy into trouble not that long ago. It feels, though, like it was a year ago. I'm Kristen Goodwin. President Biden and his Chinese counterpart meeting face to face for the first time in a year, making agreements on curbing the flow of fentanyl into the U.S. and restoring military to military communication. It is absolutely critically important we talk to the Chinese, but establishing a communication channel with China is not going to help us. And the reason is the Chinese will talk to us when they want to talk to us. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Congress averted a shutdown this week, passing a continuing resolution. The unusual bill created by new House Speaker Mike Johnson will fund some departments until January 19th, while others will be funded until February 2nd. Also this week, the House Ethics Committee issued its report on GOP New York Representative George Santos, accusing him of using campaign funds inappropriately, among other allegations. Santos, in a long tweet, said he would not run for re-election. To discuss it all, I'm here with my colleague, Fox News congressional correspondent Aisha Hosni. So, Aisha, you were one of the first uh, reporters up here covering George Santos back in January when we learned about some of these, uh, um, you know, allegations and, 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 and fraud that he was allegedly committing here. Contrast what we knew then to what we have found in the Ethics Committee report now. So it's been really interesting to watch George Santos and the personality that is George Santos sort of develop um, over the last year here. In the very beginning, he was obviously uh, very camera shy, would run away from the cameras um, because everybody wanted to know what was happening and he didn't really want to talk. And then he sort of fell into it a little bit um, and almost enjoyed being in front of the camera and um, really felt like... um, very really felt confident, I think, that he wasn't going anywhere. Um, because at that point, Speaker McCarthy, the former speaker, uh, pretty much said that he was going to leave this up to the ethics investigation, the ethics committee, and also the, the criminal charges that Santos is facing. Um, and that eventually it would really be up to the voters, right? The voters are who elect and don't elect somebody. So it sort of went away. Um, people weren't really thinking about it. And now this bombshell report drops from the ethics committee and does not serve him well at all. And, you know, you and I have been looking into this uh, and reading this uh, pretty lengthy uh, investigative report. And and you can see, I mean, he's he's allegedly he's accused of spending money on a lot of different things. Um, I was reading about, you know, he went shopping at 
the Hermes store and was uh, spending money on Sephora and doing all these things. Um, so now he has to answer for that. And, and the biggest news of all, of course, it, Chad, is that he is uh, no longer running for re-election. Um, the next question is, will he finish out his term? Yeah, what's going to come uh, when the House of Representatives comes back to session here after Thanksgiving around the 28th? Uh, Michael Guest, who's a Republican from Mississippi, he's the chair of the Ethics Committee. And when I talked to him uh, earlier this week, I asked specifically, would they recommend a, a punishment for George Santos? And he said no. He said the reason is that that probably would have extended our investigation and our report by several months, if not until this time next year. Uh, so th- you often see this uh, on a on a high level ethics investigation where they recommend um, censure or reprimand or something like that uh, expulsion. That's pretty rare. They've only expelled five five members ever. But Michael Guest, you know, in his capacity as a rank and file member, uh, he says that he is going to introduce a resolution to expel George Santos when the House returns. Uh, you know, just after Thanksgiving, you might remember that just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there was an effort by the New York Republicans, many of them from Long Island and and, and around New York City. These are these uh, these swing districts, people who are freshmen who came in with George Santos, and they flipped some of these districts from uh, blue to red. And this is one of the reasons why the Democrats uh, lost control of the House of Representatives. Right. They can't stand George Santos because this kind of washes up on their shoes. And so they have been very outspoken in their effort to try to get rid of George Santos. And there was a resolution to expel Santos. And what happened was the House moved to table it, to set it aside. And the argument was made that there had not been an ethics committee report yet, but also the fact that he had not been convicted in a court of law. Now, George Santos has still not been convicted in a court of law. And if you look at uh, those members who have been expelled, only five in U.S. House history, Aisha, um, mm-hmm. two of them were convicted, uh, Jim Traficant in Ohio, a Democrat back in uh, 2002 and back in the early 1980s, Ozzie Myers from Pennsylvania. Before that, you have to go back to the Civil War. And there were three members expelled because they sided with the Confederacy. And so members are going to say, all right, he's not been convicted what precedent are we we setting? And I asked Democrat Pat Ryan this. Um, he's from upstate New York, and he said, you know, I think that the Santos case is so unique that everything about him is that it's okay uh, to set a precedent on this. Now, again, it's a very high bar, two-thirds. And as you say, you know, what does this do to the dwindling uh, House majority for the Republicans? Exactly. I always say it's about the math. This it's will take it down to two seats. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. exactly. Exactly. Yes, because he could go down the avenue of, you know, before it even gets to the expulsion territory, he you could see, I'm not saying that we know anything, but you could see Speaker Johnson call him into the Speaker's office and ask him just to resign. Um, but then that poses a problem for a, a very slim majority. On a good day, they can only lose four. So one more GOP member out, that's tricky. And you know what's the other troubling thing for the House of Republicans? Just not the math, trying to pass their bills and everything else, but uh, because things have been so testy up here in recent weeks, <laughs> I have been told— statement. <laughs> yes, and, and we're, we're going to address this here in a second, that there might be a number of other Republicans uh, who might step down or announce their resignations or just stop in mid-Congress because they find right. that the place is absolutely toxic right now. They're not getting along. They're certainly not getting anything done. And that's a problem. And uh, and that's something that you've seen in, in you know, what Chip Roy had, had said uh, about, you know, just what these members have accomplished, right? 
Right. I mean, you know, when you talk about government spending, this is the mandate, right, that Republicans came in to control the House over. I mean, this is what they wanted to do. They wanted to come in and cut what they call Nancy Pelosi spending levels that were, um, you know, diving as in deeper into debt. And they just passed another continuing resolution, which is exactly what got former Speaker Kevin McCarthy into trouble not that long ago. It feels, though, like it was a year ago. But um, Chip Roy took to the floor uh, right after this happened, and he said this, uh, I didn't come here to have the Speaker of the House assume the position and in 17 days pass a continuing resolution. I want my Republican colleagues to give me one thing that I can go campaign on. Come explain to me one meaningful, significant thing the Republican majority has done. And he was really fired up, Chad, when he was saying that and pretty angry. Right. And he's not alone. I mean, there were, what, more than 90 Republicans, House Republicans, that voted against this Speaker McCarthy two-step stopgap bill, right? Um, I don't know if you call that a win. I mean, is it a win in that it averts a government shutdown? Of course, nobody wants to see that. But when you have Democrats like Leader Chuck Schumer gloating about this, it's hard to sell for a lot of conservatives to go back home now and try to explain to their constituents, look, we've been in control for 11 months, it's November, and we haven't cut spending. We haven't done it yet. So it, it's gonna, it's really setting up for a very nasty, very tough spending battle come January. But it's already, I mean, I, I think that might be a, one of the reasons why they send everybody home so early is you and I, you know, could feel it in the air this week. People were tense and angry and frustrated. And you saw that in, you know, Tim Burchett accusing Kevin McCarthy of elbowing him in the kidney, saying that it was painful, that he was trying to get back at him for being one of the eight Republicans that ousted him. And then you had Senator Mullen over in the, you know, the Senate help committee hearing, sort of like getting ready to brawl with a witness, you know, over mm -hmm. tweets. And then, and then of course the the, the spat between Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer and Representative Moskowitz um, sort of shouting back at each other uh, to the point where Chairman Comer calls him a smurf. I mean, it was just one thing after another to the point where some of these reporters were looking at each other like, Mercury is in retrograde or something. Something <laughs> is going on. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why they all were sent home. You know, they have been here for more than 10 weeks. Yeah. And to the layperson, they said, well, you know, we show up for work 10 weeks in a row. But we for members show of Congress, up every day. Yeah. Yeah. But, but but you know what? You know, It's a little bit different, you know, in Washington when you get them together for more than three and, and four weeks at a time. And John Boehner and Kevin McCarthy, they've talked about this. It, it, you know, it, they really need a timeout. And so they try to limit those periods. And it's not that the members aren't working. They, they uh, you know, I've covered this place for three decades now. They work hard here, and they work hard back in their, their districts. I mean, they are never out of session. If you're a member of Congress, it's a question where, whether you're doing the work. And when they're here, they get criticized for not being back home helping people. And when they're back home, they get criticized, why aren't you in Washington trying to help me? So it's, you know, they can't win right. e either way. But, you know, getting them together for so long amid the Middle East crisis, no Speaker of the House, two near-government shutdowns, um, Looking at some of these, you know, terrible videos uh, of the Hamas attacks from October 7th. I mean, this was, you know, the speaker's race. This was a tension filled period. And you, you might know the movie. This is Spinal Tap. And they have the amplifier <laughs> that goes to 11. 
Had we gone to 11 weeks in session here, that would have been a problem. The, the place probably would have exploded. And, and again, you know, we see this manifested in many forms. You know, even after the House had let out a little bit early, uh, you have and you have schisms on the left as well, where right. you have these pro-Palestinian and in some cases pro-Hamas uh, demonstrators uh, demanding a, seats, a ceasefire showing up on the doorstep of the Democratic National Committee. Um, assaulting police officers, tear gassing the police officers, them retaliating, blocking Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, uh, and many others inside the building. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, a Democrat from Florida, was there and said it was very disturbing and unnerving to her. So so everybody is kind of glad to go home for Thanksgiving. I don't know that those conversations at the Thanksgiving table are going to be pleasant either. But I don't, but, but uh, I don't think the but they're getting people out of the building. Right. I mean, I mean, they leave right. town, but the problems don't leave them. I mean, this is a huge, huge political issue for Democrats with their base, with folks who are practically threatening them. If, if you don't call for a ceasefire, if you don't move on something, telling the Biden administration this, that you won't get our votes. I mean, we're one year away now from a very, very crucial election. And President Biden and Democrats have a big problem on their hands if they don't figure this out and figure out how to... Um, you know, react in the best way. Obviously, uh, they are very pro-Israel, but there is this question of, you know, funding Israel, and which, by the way, that also didn't happen, right? They yeah. all go home without funding Israel, funding Ukraine. So that's still on the back burner and, and needs to be figured out as well. But a huge political problem, wouldn't you say, for for House Democrats especially and Senate, Senate Democrats who are facing um, a pretty vulnerable um, election next year. A lot of seats up. Yeah, I asked Brad. Uh, I, I asked Brad Schneider about this. Uh, he is a uh, Democratic member from Illinois. He is Jewish. Uh, he is aligned with APEC. And the question is that APEC is going to start to run against some of these more uh, progressive pro-Palestinian lawmakers who said some pretty intemperate things, especially when you talk about Rashida Tlaib and her comments from the, you know, the river to the sea. Mm-hmm. And Brad Schneider said, uh, he said, I want to get people in here who are, you know, for a two-state solution. And he said some of those on the left, and he was speaking specifically about uh, the group that showed up at the DNC the other night, he said they are not part of our coalition. And I said, but what about the members who are here? You have Ilan Omar. You have Rashida Tlaib. And so that's something that the Democrats certainly have to have to, to, to parcel out. I mean, that is going to be very challenging. I mean, Brad Sherman, uh, he's a Democrat from Southern California, and he was trapped inside the DNC the other night. And uh, he sent out some tweets saying, you know, these are pro-Hamas and pro-terrorist folks. He said, and apparently they want the Republicans to win, is what he said. So that, I mean, I think that underscores the conundrum that the, uh, that the Democrats face on their side of the aisle right now, too. And I think it, it, we're, we've reached a point where, you know, all year long, Democrats kept talking about how they were united. They were the ones who were united while House Republicans fought amongst each other over a multitude of issues. And, and for the most part, that was true. I think now they really face that division, that that issue, and and they have to figure this out pretty quickly here. But they, they I don't think they can any longer say that they're as united as they as they were. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's what's so interesting is that you have Republicans fighting with Republicans on one set mm-hmm. of issue, 
issues, and now you have Democrats doing the same on, uh, you know, certainly over the Middle East question. So, right. I mean, it, it's going to be a rock as rocky as it has been here on Capitol <laughs> Hill this fall. Get some I'll rest. You, get some turkey. The Christmas time. <laughs> we have these two cliffs uh, in January and February to fund the government. Uh, this is why I'm I'm getting out of Dodge, uh, <laughs> and I hope you are too. So I, I will. I'll be with my I'll be with my family for Thanksgiving, and I'll need it. I'll need to be reminded. I'll go back to the Midwest and just be reminded of what. Um, you know, those real Americans out there, what they want Congress to do. And, and you I'll see, I'm going to the Midwest also. You see, maybe there's <laughs> yeah, something about the Midwest. I. You see, that's the problem. We all need to well, go to the Midwest. The Midwest will set know? us straight. <laughs> yes. All right, Aisha. Thank you. Thanks, Chad. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I've just returned from San Francisco, where President Biden's meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit was the main focus of the event. The leaders of the world's two largest economies convening for the first time in a year, speaking for four hours on issues ranging from cracking down on Chinese-based fentanyl production. More people in the United States between the ages of 18 and 49 die from fentanyl than from guns car accidents, or any other cause. Restoring military communication channels, Russia's war on Ukraine, the conflict in the Middle East, Taiwan, and AI. We're going to get our experts together to discuss risk and safety issues associated with artificial intelligence. To help me break down the key takeaways of their high-stakes meeting is expert on China, Gatestone Institute senior fellow and author of China is Going to War, Gordon Chang. Once again, the United States has done something concrete in return for a promise from China. Now, we all hope that China will honor this promise, but we got to remember that President Biden made this promise with Xi Jinping, the same Xi Jinping who made this identical promise in 2018. And since then, we've seen record amounts of fentanyl come into the United States. We got to remember that the Communist Party runs a near total surveillance state. So it knows exactly what these large, well-organized fentanyl gangs are doing, which means they couldn't operate without the approval of the Communist Party. But we don't need to speculate because Chinese diplomats give cover to the fentanyl gangs. The gangs launder their proceeds through the Chinese state banking system. And virtually every container that leaves China is inspected by officials. So we come to the awful conclusion that the Communist Party wants to kill Americans. And it's been very successful at that because last year, 70,000 Americans died from doses of illicit fentanyl. Almost all of that fentanyl came from China, which means the death toll is is enormous. Right. Yeah. And touching on that, like you mentioned, fentanyl, a synthetic opioids trafficking at the U.S. southern border has really plagued the Biden administration and led to a surge of U.S. overdose deaths. Uh, During a press conference at APEC, President Biden was asked about this agreement and whether he trusts China to follow through on curbing the flow of the chemical precursors to the drug. The president responded, trust but verify. Gordon, what does that look like for the Biden administration? 
Well, it looks like uh, further rounds of consultation with China through a working group, which is not going to work. You know, President Biden could stop mm. the flow of fentanyl into the U.S. if he wanted to. He could, first of all, close the southern border. And also, he could impose severe costs on China for this. But he has done neither. So we have to assume that he wants Americans to die because of fentanyl. I know that's harsh, but the point is he knows how to stop this. He's not doing it. So we have to come to that conclusion that this is acceptable in President Biden's world. And on military ties, the two leaders also agreed to reestablish military to military communication, specifically to restore communication among their senior military commanders. China cut off military communication with the U.S. last year after former Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. President Biden has said uh, vital miscalculations on either side can cause real trouble with a country like China or any other major country. Talk to me a little bit about this and why restoring communication channels with China was a top focus here for the U.S. Well, it's a top focus for the U.S. because the U.S. does not understand the Chinese military and the Chinese political system. Because if they did, they would understand that communication channels are basically uh, worthless. And the reason is, yes, we talked to the Soviets during the Cold War. It's important. It is absolutely critically important we talk to the Chinese. But establishing a communication channel with China is not going to help us. And the reason is, the Chinese will talk to us when they want to talk to us, and they won't talk when they don't want to. And it doesn't matter whether we have a communication channel with them or not. The reality is that in the Communist Party's top-down system, that no, if there's an incident, nothing can be decided for a pretty long period of time because the senior leaders have got to come to some view on it, and that view has then got to be uh, discussed with the Chinese military, And only then will China talk to us. And that has been the history of accidents with China, especially going back to 2001, when uh, a Chinese fighter clipped the wing of a U.S. Navy EP-3 in international airspace over the South China Sea. So while we would like to think these communication channels are absolutely essential, and they are, the problem is that they just don't work in practice. Right. Another hot topic throughout the summit and and really the last year, uh, the U.S. and China vowing to have their experts work together to discuss the risk and safety issues associated with artificial intelligence. The two did not announce any deals on AI, but the U.S. did note the risks AI poses when used in the military or nuclear operations, with the President Biden stressing the U.S. will not provide technology that can be used against America's military, seemingly referencing uh, advanced semiconductors. How do you think that uh, is affecting or will affect China in what seems like this race between the two nations for supercomputing and artificial intelligence technology? And, And what are some of the U.S.'s concerns about that advanced tech? We do not want American technology to be used by China to kill Americans. And President Biden, um, to his credit, has imposed restrictions on the sale of U.S. um, semiconductors and chip-making equipment. Like previous presidents, he hasn't moved far enough, he hasn't moved fast enough, but at least he's moving in the right direction. It, It is true that when you marry artificial intelligence and nuclear weapons, it's a very dangerous combination. 
Um, but I'm glad there's no agreement on this. And the reason is that um, any agreement on AI in um, weapon systems is just unenforceable because to enforce it, um, both sides would have to let the other to inspect millions, maybe tens of millions of line of code. And that's just not going to happen. So I was afraid that there was going to be an agreement which was completely unenforceable. And we have a lot of completely unenforceable arms agreements with China, such as, for instance, the Biological Weapons Convention, which prohibits a country from maintaining stores of bioweapons, but has no verification mechanisms. And we saw what happened with COVID-19, which probably came from a Chinese biological weapons lab, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It's interesting that you say that and then this whole idea of this uh, this fentanyl deal and the trust but verify yet there's no, uh, you know, independent oversight to making sure that they're following through on this. It's it's it does seem like you're saying all these these agreements, uh, it's, they're really not adequate. They're really not going to help the U.S. in the long run. And indeed are counterproductive um, because we honor agreements and China doesn't. So if you have an agreement with China, it has to have strict verification mechanisms. And our agreements basically do not. So really what we are doing is entering into one-way agreements, which um, are extremely prejudicial to American interests. I'd like to think that we could have agreements with China that would work, but unfortunately they don't. Even something as basic as the Vienna Convention on um, diplomatic missions, China violates its obligations all the time, and um, we just sort of sit there and accept it. And that's wrong. And it's not just Biden who has had this passive attitude. It's all of his predecessors going back many um, administrations. President Biden also stressed the importance of peace and stability in Taiwan, calling out China over its massive military buildup around the island. The Chinese president insisted the island is part of China. U.S. officials called the talks on this clear-headed and not heated, but President Biden later kind of finding himself in a war of words with China after he doubled down on calling Xi Jinping a dictator. The Chinese government responding to that, saying it will be unstoppable in retaking Taiwan eventually. Uh, Taiwan seems to be one of the U.S.'s most important trading partners and a huge manufacturer of semiconductor chips. What is your take on all of this? The American policy on Taiwan has been clear. President Biden has, on occasions with reporters, said that the U.S. would use military force to defend Taiwan. That was to his credit. Not to his credit is he allowed his subordinates to completely contradict him, which um, is really distressing because whatever one thinks about Taiwan, Kristen, what Beijing saw was disarray in the administration. Um, We need to have deterrence on Taiwan. I think that we have established that uh, because it appears as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Charles Brown, has said, it looks like, at least for the moment, China has given up on the idea of actually invading Taiwan. But that doesn't mean the threat from the Chinese military has abated. Um, We are seeing some very dangerous activities uh, from the Chinese Maritime Militia and Coast Guard at 2nd Thomas Shoal in the South China Sea. Second Thomas is a part of the Philippines. China has been engaging actually in acts of war against the Philippines. We have been issuing written statements saying that the U.S. is prepared to use force to defend our ally pursuant to our 1951 Mutual Defense Treaty. 
The Chinese keep escalating anyway. On October 25, President Biden actually issued a oral warning to the same effect. The Chinese just ignored that. So deterrence has failed, and that could lead to the worst outcomes because the war in Asia could start not over Taiwan, but over some shoals in the South China Sea. There have been swarms of protesters outside of APEC. Uh, I witnessed hundreds protesting China and its president being in San Francisco, uh, holding signs, reading, rise up against dictatorship. Again, President Biden revealing he's not changed his view that the Chinese president uh, is effectively a dictator. A rep for China's foreign ministry saying they strongly oppose the dictator description, calling the statement wrong and uh, irresponsible manipulation. Gordon, would you say President Biden is correct in referring to President uh, Xi as a dictator? President Biden is correct, as he was correct in June when he used the same label. A dictator is, uh, and President Biden's um, description of what a dictator is was wrong, but he was right on the ultimate conclusion. A dictator is a ruler who has virtually total control over his political system and his country. And that pretty much describes Xi Jinping these days. Um, Xi Jinping demands absolute uh, obedience of the Communist Party to him, and he demands that the Chinese people show absolute obedience to the party. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's describing essentially a dictatorship. Um, right. You know, Confucius, the most important thing he ever said was that we got to call things by their proper names. Um, and at least on this, Biden has got it right. But the American people should be asking, if Xi Jinping is a dictator, Why did we invite him and give him such royal treatment when he visited San Francisco? Yes, it's it's an interesting question. I feel like I've gotten that question a few times speaking to our affiliates. And uh, yeah, I did think I agree with you. That was uh, an interesting way when he phrased it, when a reporter asked him. I think he said uh, he's a dictator in the sense that he is a guy who runs a country that is a communist country that is based on a form of government totally different than ours, not really stressing uh, like you just described it. Uh, he was sort of saying, you know, he's not elected democratically, but it's it goes a bit further than that. Yeah, not every um, unelected leader is a dictator. And indeed, before Xi Jinping, um, his predecessor, Hu Jintao, was not a dictator because Hu Jintao ran a consensual system, which the Communist Party was run by committee where important decisions were made by consensus across the political spectrum. It was very much an institution. Um, Xi Jinping changed that by grabbing power from everybody. And when he grabbed power from everybody, he became a dictator. So Biden was right on the um, ultimate conclusion, um, but not on the way that he described it. I'm sure the political scientists are wincing uh, when the president (laughs) mentioned that definition. Uh, Gordon, President Biden has emphasized U.S. support for Israel condemning Hamas's attack and backing what he calls restrained retaliation by Israeli forces, while the president of China and Russian President Vladimir Putin have urged a ceasefire and condemned attacks on civilians, but they've not condemned Hamas's actions. President Biden essentially asking his Chinese counterpart to use Beijing's influence with Russia and with Iran to help make sure Russia's war on Ukraine and the Israel-Hamas conflicts in the Middle East don't widen in the regions. What's the messaging from Chinese officials on this ask? And is America's approach with China on these conflicts adequate? America's approach is not adequate. Um, for China, for instance, is fueling this war. And it's not only through its pro-Hamas propaganda. It has been buying Iranian oil at elevated levels. 
So, for instance, in the first nine months of this year, China's purchases of Iranian oil was 60% above that in 2017. 2017 is relevant because it's the last year um, before the Trump administration reimposed American sanctions on the purchase of Iranian oil. Um, what uh, we have seen both the Trump administration, but most um, especially the Biden administration, failing to enforce those oil sanctions. And, um, you know, we can ask uh, Moscow and Beijing for help on this, but they are on the other side. We've got to acknowledge that. And if we want them to act constructively, we've got to impose the most severe costs on them to give them incentives to act in a way that we want. Biden refuses to do that. Biden's had the most pro-Iran policy, uh, even maybe more so than the Obama administration. So it is no accident that this war occurred under his watch. And if I may add one more thing, and that is about three weeks before October 7th, uh, Iranian proxies attacked Bahraini forces in the region. And the Biden administration not only failed to do anything about that, it failed to say anything about that. And people in the region are saying that was a signal that the Iranian regime received that it could and it could attack Israel. So um, Biden has a lot to answer for. And I want to talk on just the diplomacy surrounding or leading up to this summit, despite icy tensions, a really rocky year between the two countries. Uh, there was this flurry of diplomacy leading up to the summit with <clears throat> excuse me, senior Biden administration officials going to China and Beijing, uh, sending several of its senior officials to the U.S. Do you see this uh, so-called intense diplomacy continuing? And is there anything already in on the books well the intense diplomacy will continue because biden believes that it is important um i think that that is misguided remember we've had intense diplomacy with china since the cold war so we've had three decades of talking to china cajoling china trying to persuade china and it hasn't worked it has produced the disastrous results that we now see and the question the American people should be asking their president is, what did you say that was different from what American presidents have said for those three decades? Um, and so I think we need to abandon an approach that has not worked. It sounds like our, our approach of intensified diplomacy sounds responsible, sounds like it should work, but in fact, it's not. And we need to change that because if we continue along this path, we're going to get worse outcomes. And I just overall, I want to ask you, uh, what stood out to you as the most significant outcome or just in general from this from this meeting? China needs the United States. Its economy is in distress. President Biden could have used leverage on China, which I hope he did. I mean, we won't know what happens, what happened for at least six months and then we'll see. Right. But it doesn't appear that he did. And really what is significant is that uh, while Biden was announcing all of his progress at his post-meeting press conference on Wednesday, Xi Jinping was not next to him. I would have liked to have heard Xi Jinping said, yes, we had a lot of progress. I agree with what President Biden just said. But Xi Jinping wasn't there and there was no joint statement. Um, that's not a good sign. Well, I really enjoyed talking to you about this and I, I so appreciate your time and your input Gordon Chang, expert on China, Gatestone Institute senior fellow and author. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kristen. I really appreciate it.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. That will do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington podcast. Tomorrow, we talk to president and CEO of Hillel International, Adam Lehman, about the rise in anti-Semitism across the country and what the White House is doing to combat it. We also take a look at the shrinking U.S. Navy and what solutions Republican candidates have for modernizing our military. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Kristen Goodwin, and this is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.